And welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for December 11, 2014. I'm Esther Rivera. And I'm Michael Byfield. On the Ground lifts up voices of activists and activism here in the nation's capital and around the planet. Well, as demonstrations continue around the country after grand juries failed to indict police officers in the death of Michael Brown in Missouri and Eric Garner in New York, mothers of slain black men and boys took the Capitol by storm this week, the same week that details of CIA torture were made public in a long-awaited report. For activists on the ground, the convergence of these two issues point directly to the impunity of police and the policing military-industrial complex from the consequences of brutality and killing. This Saturday, a coalition of organizations and thousands of others are planning to gather here in D.C. for the National March Against Police Violence. We'll check in with Salim Adofo of the Black United Front, who will be honored tonight for his work as an activist. And, of course, we'll take your comments in the second half of the show. All that and more is coming up, but first our headlines. For the past three days, mothers of black men and boys killed by police visited here in the nation's capital to demand justice and fundamental change in both how police and the justice system function. In the delegation were mothers of sons killed in high-profile cases, including Valerie Bell, mother of Sean Bell, the 23-year-old unarmed man killed on his wedding day, November 2006. Wanda Johnson, whose son Oscar Grant was shot in the back and killed by a transit police officer at a train station in Oakland in 2009. Constance Malcolm, the mother of Romarley Graham, who was 18 years old in 2012 when a New York police officer shot and killed him in his own home. And Tressa Sherrod, mother of John Crawford III, the 22-year-old who was shot and killed on August 5, 2014, by police in a Walmart in Ohio. The mothers held a public forum on Tuesday night and on Wednesday held a vigil at the Justice Department after several of them spoke on Capitol Hill, including Geraldine Bluford, mother of Alan Bluford, an 18-year-old student killed by the Oakland police in 2012. I demand that you stop this militarization of the police force. The police officers are not in war. They are here to protect and service the community and to help each and every one make our world a better place. And what they are doing is making it worse and worse and breaking us down and taking our youth and stealing our hope away. And I demand that it must stop today. I demand that the police officers have better treatment and that they have better training. I know that there's no prosecutor or attorney, attorney general or judge that want to prosecute their own. There's police officers within their own department that do not even feel safe with one another. If one speaks out against each other, then they're blackballed. I demand if you come from war and that you get a job in the police department, you have special training. That you do not take your militarized and your training from the war and bring it to our community because it only ends up war, destruction, and genocide of our youth. And I demand that it stop. There is to be no more Alan Bluefords. 
There is to be no more Eric Gardner's. There is to be no more Mike Brown's. There is to be no more of my sisters that stand here as we shed our tears. Today, I stand before you and I demand justice. Justice for Allen. Justice for Mike Brown. Justice for Eric Gardner. Justice for all the young men and the mothers and family that are here with me today. Justice for us all. It is not warranted. No, our teenagers and people are not perfect. But they do deserve a future. And I demand that we let them have a future. I demand that you hold these officers accountable. That was Geraldine Bluford, mother of Alan Bluford, an 18-year-old student killed by the Oakland police in 2012, speaking on Capitol Hill yesterday. More on the visit by these mothers to the Capitol after headlines. This Saturday, a coalition of organizations and thousands of others are planning to gather here in D.C. for the National March Against Police Violence, the march organized by Al Sharpton's National Action Network and the families of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Akai Gurley, is calling for all cases of police brutality and killing of unarmed citizens to be handled by a prosecutor or procedure that has no connection or working relationship to local police. Marches will gather. Saturday at 10.30 a.m. at Freedom Plaza at 14th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest before marching at noon along Pennsylvania Avenue to the Department of Justice and then to the Capitol. More information is at nationalnetwork.org. Other highlights this past week of protest include the NBA's LeBron James and other players wearing T-shirts bearing Garner's last words, I can't breathe. Other cities taking part in the ongoing protest include Berkeley, California, where more than a thousand people march in the streets and shut down a highway. Monday, a group of protesters also blocked an Amtrak train after marching on a railroad track. Yesterday, doctors and medical students all over the country stayed die-ins dubbed White Coat for Black Lives. In Ohio, the family of slain 12-year-old Tamir Rice has filed a federal civil rights suit against the city of Cleveland and two officers involved in his death. Rice was playing inside a park with a toy gun that had a plastic strip removed when an officer pulled up and immediately opened fire. The Rice family says the officers did not administer first aid on Tamir after he was shot, and that Tamir's 14-year-old sister was tackled and handcuffed after she arrived at the scene. The family wants the case to go straight to trial instead of before a grand jury. In news about the planet, Common Dreams reports that the argument that environmental issues are inherently intertwined with social justice issues is one that has been voiced repeatedly. But in the wake of recent grand jury decisions, leading environmental groups have come out strong in support of those in the streets, arguing that a world that breeds such inequalities is fundamentally opposed to the idea of a sustainable society. Quote, we cannot lead a meaningful fight for the environment without first taking steps to address the unequal valuation of life within it.
Friends of the Earth President Eric Pika wrote in a statement this weekend, The preventable deaths of Mike Brown, Darian Hunt, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Ayanna Jones, Oscar Grant, and dozens of others bespeak not just a systematic injustice, but a cancer in our national consciousness that seems to place little value on the lives of black and brown people. Our mission is to create a healthier and more just world, but we have little hope of success if our nation cannot agree on the definitions of chokehold, unarmed, and murder, let alone clean air and water, Pika concluded. This year's UN Climate Change Conference in Peru marks the first time the talks have been held in an Amazon country. More than 70% of Peru's national territory is within the Amazon basin. There are also activists at the conference from Nigeria opposing the environmental destruction caused by the conglomerate Shell Oil. My name is Godwin Ojo, Environmental Rights Action Friends of the Earth Nigeria. We are here to condemn the activities of Shell in COP20. Shell is promoting dirty energy as part of the energy future of the world. The people you see here gathered, civil society groups, they say no. It is time for energy transformation of the world from dirty energy, from nuclear, from coal, from oil, to that of renewable energy, in line with the African position of renewable energy feeding tariffs. This is why we are here. Share, in addition, has caused monumental havoc in the Niger Delta. They have destroyed our rivers, they have destroyed our livelihood. They have destroyed all that the people depend on. So they, they make profit without concern for local people. So it is time they, they, they are no longer part of the economy of Nigeria, they are no longer part of the energy future of the world. So this is why we are pushing for renewable energy and to say Shell has no part in COP20 or any air summit whatsoever. That was Godwin Uyu Ojo, Executive Director of Environmental Rights Action, Friends of the Earth, Nigeria, speaking from this year's UN Climate Change Conference in Lima, Peru. In Nigeria, the Niger Delta has just suffered one of its worst oil spills in years after nearly 4,000 barrels of crude oil poured from a shell pipeline. In stateside Planet News, a new investigation reveals attorneys general nationwide have secretly worked with energy companies to fight federal regulations. According to the New York Times, corporate lobbyists have helped Republican attorneys general in at least a dozen states craft strategies and file lawsuits against environmental rules. In return, the officials have received record donations for their political campaigns, including at least 16 million this year. In one case, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt sent a complaint to federal regulators over air pollution limits. Pruitt did not disclose the fact that lawyers for the oil and gas company, Devon Energy, wrote his letter. On the ground in D.C. today, home care workers filed a major lawsuit against some of the city's largest Medicaid providers, including those that are already embroiled in investigations related to Medicaid fraud. The lawsuit, the first in a series of suits that will be filed against D.C. home care agencies, is expected to have far-reaching implications for workers, the home care industry, and citywide regulations. In our culture and media moment, protesters also planned to gather outside the FCC this morning to press the agency to classify the Internet as a public utility like phone service and therefore guaranteeing net neutrality or equal access for all users and websites. 
And journalist Greg Palast has won the December Sydney Award for Jim Crow Returns and Challenging Crosscheck, a two-part Al Jazeera America expose that shows how millions of innocent people, primarily people of color, were flagged as suspected vote fraudsters just because they had the same first and last name as someone in another state. On the eve of the 2014 elections, officials had begun to purge voters based upon interstate cross-check voter fraud prevention software. More than 40,000 voters were dropped from the rolls in Virginia alone. And those are our headlines. When we come back, more voices of mothers of the slain visiting the nation's capital this week. We'll be right back. Our Lord, grant us good in this world and good in the life to come keep us safe from the torment of the fire as we keep our hands up high and scream for justice. Ferguson, rest in peace Mike Brown and all the young soldiers out there. God help us. Time to take a stand and save our future. Like we are Gasha, we are Gasha. Throwing up our hands, don't let them shoot us. Cause we are, we got, we are, we got. God ain't place on the earth to get murdered, it's murder. God ain't place on the earth to get murdered, it's murder. Don't put your weapons at me Seen the pictures, feel the pain Scandals how they murder son Tired of them killing us I'm on my way to Ferguson Talk to Tip, I talk to Diddy Then my brother's walking with me Mother's crying, stop the riots We ain't got a chocolate city I seen coal out there Felt I should go out there They left that boy four hours in the cold out there They killing teens They killing dreams Yeah, come on We gotta stick together and welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for December 11, 2014. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm Michael Byfield. The first stop here in D.C. for mothers who have lost children to police brutality was the Trinity Lutheran Church in Northwest D.C. on Tuesday night, where On the Ground was there to bring you the mothers in their own words. The mother's trip was sponsored and organized by Code Pink, the D.C. Hands Up Coalition, Mothers Against Brutality, and the National Congress of Black Women. Here are their voices. Um, thank you on tonight for just allowing me this space of time. First, I want to just say, what is justice? To us, justice is many different things. And my son did not deserve to be killed. Um, we had spent my birthday together, which is the 31st of December, and I instructed him to take Bart to San Francisco to watch the fireworks, and he did just that, took Bart. Um, never did I expect to receive a phone call that said that he had been shot. And at first I was like, oh my God, what happened? And his fiance told me that the police had shot him. And I said, well, what happened? And I raced to the hospital and still didn't have a clear picture of what had happened to my son. And the next day, several people had uh, videotaped what had happened to him. 
And so they put it on YouTube and gave it to the local news media. And the media began to play it on television, what exactly had happened to my son. Um, one of the officers who had came up was um, acting very aggressive and my son knew his rights and he seen one of his friends being mistreated by the officer so he stood up and told the officer he wanted to talk to someone who was in charge and the officer pushed him back down and told him to shut that F up and use some racial epithets towards him and my son said, we want to talk to somebody. Then another officer came up, the one who shot and killed my son, and pointed his taser at my son. So the last picture on my son's camera was a picture of the officer pointing his taser at him. And this is the same officer who said he thought he was pulling his gun I mean, he thought he was pulling his taser, but he accidentally pulled his gun. But the, the, the first things that really happened during that transition of him killing my son was that the whole system began to try to cover up the action of what the officer had did. They first tried to say, well, he thought my son was going for a gun. And then when my son didn't have a gun, they said, oh, he was resisting arrest. But yet my son is only about 170 pounds, and the officer who was on his neck was 260 pounds, and the officer who was on his feet was 235 pounds. And so when they flipped my son to the ground, they had flipped him on one of his friend's legs, and my son was telling him, and his friend was saying, He's on my leg, he's on my leg. And so the next thing you know, the officer got up and pulled his gun and shot my son in the back. My son looked up at the officer and said to him, you shot me. I have a four-year-old daughter. You shot me. And my son was pronounced dead at the next morning. So what is justice? Um, we, went to, we went to court the first time in California history. The officer was charged at first with second degree murder and the jury found and convicted him of involuntary manslaughter with the gun enhancement charge. But yet, which the gun enhancement charge would have given an additional 10 years. But the judge said, oh, I made a mistake with giving instructions to the jury. So I'm going to throw out the gun enhancements charge, which would have been an extra 10 years. And I'm going to also give the officer time served for being a good officer and give him credit served, rather, um, for being a mortal good officer while he was in, incarcerated in county jail. And the judge winded up giving him 11 months in county jail for the killing of my son. So what is justice? Was that justice? Totally no, it wasn't justice in my eyesight. So why do I still fight? Because my son should not have been killed by the officer. 
And I work to help and to bring to light the issues that are taking place in our communities. Our black and brown young men are being killed at such a high rate. And we as citizens have to change our first, have to change our mindset. Because we've been taught for so long that officers are basically more righteous or more perfect than we are. So we've been taught to believe everything that they say. But I stopped by just to say to you today that they lie just like we can lie. They steal just like we steal. They kill just like civilians kill. And because they kill, they should be held accountable for their actions. If my son would have killed that officer, my son would have been on death row or in jail for 25 to life. And I believe that the officers who killed my son should have been on death row or been in jail 25 to life. We have to fight to make sure that officers are held accountable for their actions. And the only way that they're going to be held accountable for their actions is if you and I continue to let other people know that officers are not as righteous as we think they are. Am I saying all officers are bad? No, I'm not saying that. But the ones that are bad, they need to be identified and they need to be taken off the force. And the only way that's going to happen is if you and I work together to bring this to the forefront like we're doing with Eric Gardner's case, like they're doing with Michael Brown's case, like they've done with Trayvon Martin's case, like they've done with Alan Bruford's case, Oscar Grant's case, all these cases that we have been seeing escalating, lives are being lost. And the only way that it's going to change is if you and I work and go up to Congress and say that we're not going to take it anymore. We are going to stand for what is right and lives matter. Whether the life is black, whether the life is brown, whether the life is right, lives matters. And my son's life matters. If we want to see change take place, we got to look at our Constitution and begin to work there because the grand juries are not going to get it. We're not going to, we cannot expect them to rule in favor of us. You know why? Because we, they have been taught differently. And until we begin to reteach what we have learned, we will see the same thing occur. So we need to teach what's right. We need to teach that all lives matter, that we are created equal. If I cut you, you bleed red blood. If you cut me, I bleed red blood. And so my son life matter. And we must, we must work together and make it known that all lives matters. And the only way that that's going to be brought to the forefront is when the economy feels what we feel. Because...
Because when one life is lost, okay, well, they'll stop, they'll stop um, protesting in a little while. That's what's being said. And so we have to make sure that we're, when we are protesting, that we're protesting so that the nation can feel it and not just the communities where we're breaking windows, but the nation needs to feel it all around. And so only you and I can make that difference. And I just once again thank you. And I want to say that Oscar's life mattered. And I am Oscar Blank. She issued a call to action. There is a sign-up sheet going around. We can't just attend demonstrations and forums. We have to help to strategize and organize and become participants in this to change this crisis. There is a sign-up sheet going around. We invite you all to sign up. These are all our children. We're all one. These are our children. Don't wait until it comes home. Don't wait. These are our children. Our next speaker, Valerie Bell, is the mother of Sean Bell, a 23-year-old man that was killed on what would have been his wedding day. November 25, 2006, in a barrage of 50 shots fired into his car by a New York police officer, plainclothes police officers. Valerie Bell is the founder of Mothers of Never Again, Miss Bell. I'm standing here to be a voice for Sean Bell. As all of you probably know the story, November 25th, 2006, 50 shots were shot at his car for no reason. They didn't take my son as being a human being. I even never heard of a person shooting a dog or an animal 50 times. Which young man these days do not have a bachelor party? Went to a bachelor party to have fun because on that day, the 25th, he was supposed to get married. They so-called undercover cops said they heard somebody said, go get my gun. Because they had an altercation in front of the, the club. So one of the officers who was undercover decides to follow them. Instead of, instead of them telling them to stop before you get to the car, no, he follows them to the car. He waits until they get in the car. And my son, who was the driver, pulled off. See this, off, not officer, see this man coming towards him. He's thinking it's a carjack. So he pulls off hitting him a little bit, he starts shooting. Instead of him calling for help, 911, the other undercover officers came along, started shooting. I thought they were supposed to take cover. There was plenty of cars parked out there. Why did they not take cover? But they're hearing bullets. They're hearing their own bullets come against them. One of the young men, Guzman, was found with 16 bullets in his body. He survived. Another young man had two bullets in his leg. He survived. But no, Sean, from the officer who shot 31 times, he had four bullets, but it hit a part of his body, which I was told was his liver. He did not make it. So I'm here to be a voice for him. I'm here to be a voice for all these other mothers. Even though my son incident was eight years ago, I didn't go out much. This is my first time to Washington. I want to thank Cole Pink for inviting me to... <laughs> 
invited me to do this. And I sit back, since it happened, every month you hear somebody being shot by a police officer who's under, who the person is unarmed. Why? You ask yourself why. Why are they doing this? Because a lot of things need to be changed in the police um, policy. As we all stand together, which we should, there's been many marches, but you have to continue to write letters. Not to march, I mean, it's okay to march, but to come forth, like Ms. Um, Oscar grandmother said, and come together. Write your congressman, write everybody to help us. Not only um, the mothers, but all, and you know, of course the nation, to come help our mothers to, to speak for our children. On that day, I thought it was supposed to have been a happy day, but it was a sad day. But my husband said to my son, because he was going to be a baseball player. You see that picture up there? He's smiling because he was in high school when he won the New York City Championship at Yankee Stadium. He had a life, two children, now eight and 12. That he was gonna be famous one day. And to see this, being famous this way, it hurts, but I'm here to be a voice and to help all the mothers that want my help. God bless you. You're listening to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition on WPFW 89.3, your station for jazz and justice. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm Michael Byfield. And we've just been listening to Valerie Bell, mother of Sean Bell, 23-year-old unarmed black man killed on his winning day in 2006. Before that was Wanda Johnson, whose son Oscar Grant was shot in the back and killed by a transit police officer at a train in Oakland, California in 2009. When we come back, it's your turn. You can call 202-588-0893 to raise your voice about the evolving movement to address police brutality, killings, and terror, the impunity of the policing military-industrial complex, and how people are mobilizing to fight back. Michael Byfield will take your calls at 202-588-0893, and he'll be joined by Salima Dofo of the National Black United Front. And again, 202-588-0893 will be the number to call in. We'll be right back. I'm talking about Emmett Till, I'm talking about Azel Ford, yeah. talking about Sean Bell, they never go to jail for nah. it. Trayvon over Skittles, Mike Brown, Cigarello, story keep repeating itself like the Biggie instrumental. America's a glass house and my revenge is mental. Revenge is mental. Rather use my brain and throw a cocktail through a window. I got the keys to the city, still we left in the cold. Hands in the sky, still was left in the road. Ribbon in the sky, Michael Brown, another soul. Stole by the system, black men, we pay the toll. Price is your life, Uncle Sam on a slice Black dress code, now we looting in the night Now we throwing Molotovs in the Holocaust And I know they hate to hear me screaming If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition uh, I'm actually still here in the studio with Michael Byfield. Uh, the music you just heard during the break and earlier in the show is the Mike Brown Don't Shoot song by Diddy, Rick Ross, 2 Chains, Fabulous, Swale, and more. Uh, for this segment, uh, we're joined on the line by Salim Adolfo, National Vice Chair of the National Black United Front and an organizer with the D.C. Ferguson Coalition. 
Yes, ma'am. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning, uh, Salim. And um, but it's also your turn. And you can call uh, 202-588-0893 to raise your voice about uh, evolving movement to address uh, police brutalities, killings, and acts of terror, the impunity of the military-industrial police complex, and how people are mobilizing to fight back. Again, the number is 202-588-0893. So we actually do have a caller, and before we uh, get to you, Salim, let's, let's listen to uh, our caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I'm calling from Maryland. Good morning. Yes, I have a question and a comment. My comment is, um, why does nobody hardly ever mention what he fell forward? Because uh, he was a mentally challenged person, and the police officer knew he was mentally challenged when he shot him. And my question is, isn't it true that the guy whose mother talked, uh, I think his name was Sean Bell, wasn't he a retired officer who was had formed an organization to expose corrupt police officers in New York, and that was the real reason why they killed him? Okay. Uh, well, I n actually have heard a number of people um, raise up the name of Ezell Ford and include him in a lot of the the memorial and the protest that's going on. I think that, you know, when I was at the um, program on Tuesday night at the church, for example, uh, there was a big memorial set up at the front of the church with, like, hearts and pictures of the um many victims and Azel Ford was one of the people uh, remembered in that memorial and Sean Bell was actually a young man he wasn't retired I believe from anywhere he he was a young man who um, his mother explained he was a, actually a very talented um, high school baseball player he had won the high maybe the state or, or city championship in baseball he uh, he was about to be married uh, he had two young children and he wasn't of the age to really retire from anywhere so you may have that mixed up with another um, story but um, but thank you for calling yeah so um, Salim you know uh, I guess uh, the uh, big focus right now is on the march that's about to occur on this Saturday and I know that you said that uh, NBUFF will be participating you know uh, in that march I'm just curious though because I know even at the conversations on Tuesday night there were some people who were kind of feeling ambivalent because the march is organized by the Reverend Al Sharpton and and early on in this whole Ferguson movement there was some sense or kind of resistance to some of the traditional civil rights leaders their approach to it or them getting involved in it can you tell me a little bit about you know the evolution of how maybe people have come together I do know a lot of the families are with them so perhaps that they provide a bridge well I can't speak to the organizing efforts of this particular action but I will say that there is uh, you know some controversy around you know Al Sharpton being one of the organizers of it but I would say that um, you know as a member of the National Black United Front and as a member of the DC Ferguson movement is that you know we are in line with any action that is going to um, you know be working towards bringing about some some change around this issue of police brutality and police murders um, 
we don't always all have to agree on everything. Um, but if we can find just one issue that we can agree upon and, you know, work towards that in, you know, whatever way, shape, or form that, you know, your particular institution or organization can put their energies uh, forth in, you know, we, we support that. I mean, we're going to be out there. We have a petition that we're launching that we did launch uh, this Monday around the jump outs. Um, you can go online at mbufdc.org. And uh, the petition is up there. We have a uh, within the National Black United Front. We have a community action plan that uh, will be circulated as well. So we just want to join in with any group you know that's working towards ending police brutality and mass incarceration in America. So you know, just because I don't want us to lose our train of thought, we do have a, you know more callers waiting. But I want you to talk about. Um, jump outs because you know it's something that we're talking about on the station a lot and I think that people are starting to understand more about it but sometimes I think that those of us who may be more familiar with the subject we use terminology right. and it may not be really familiar to everybody so why don't you tell uh, everyone listening what the jump outs are and what well, the, people are protesting yes the, the, the jump outs are um, it's a vice unit within the Metropolitan Police Department that uh, I believe every di uh, district you know, has that kind of a unit. And we're uh, talking about the broader concept of the demilitarization of the police. And so what that looks like in terms of the operations that I've witnessed in Washington, D.C., is through, you know, that particular vice squad in each of those districts. And they have military gear, they have um, the military weapons, and they're using military tactics on, you know, civilians, and particularly children and specifically, you know, young black men the ages 13, 14, you know, teenagers. And so, you know, just on any given day and time, you might see uh, a young man on Good Hope in 14th in Southeast. And here, you know, you got uh, some plainclothes police officers sometimes where they're just coming out of uh, unmarked cars and it's just an all-out assault on a young person. And to use those, kind of a, those kinds of tactics, you know, on civilians is, is just absolutely unnecessary. I don't think you need to have a grown man, you know, use that kind of um, power over, you know, a, a teenager. I will liken this to similar to the stop and frisk in New York, although it's not, you know, the same as just, just being just stopped and just being questioned. It's just more intense because of the type of uh, tactics that they're using. Right. So I, I do want us to hold that thought, too, because, you know, one one question and one response, think you know, elicits another question and response. And so I I'm thinking about so many of these cases involving undercover police officers approaching men young men and and the case in in Ferguson or St. Louis actually that occurred after the Mike Brown killing when uh the young man was 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 killed they said that he had a gun but he approached a young he was approached by an undercover cover police officer and similarly Sean Bell was approached by an undercover police officer and and his mother uh spoke the other night saying that he thought um this person was a carjacker so um you know just this whole idea of people being approached by undercover police officers and they don't really know this person is an officer that certainly seems to like precipitate a lot of what's happening but anyway let's go to our next caller um just say your first name and where you're calling from Good morning, uh, Aster Fospa. Good morning, Good morning. Innocent, innocent, innocent life taken have to get justice. And in someone who took 
innocent life have to face justice. Justice is as essential as air and water to any people. Justice is as essential as air and water to any people. As simple as that. Okay. Okay, and thank you for that comment. Uh, next caller, just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hi, my name is Kathy, and I'm calling from uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Ward 4. And I'm with a group called the Catholic Worker, and I was at the demonstration last night in front of the Injustice Department holding a sign, the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He said that April 4th, 1967. And um, I heard one of the speakers say all of all of what's going on, the killings by the police, the torture, the war making, and you've invited questions on the industrial military industrial complex, uh, led me to call and say that I think uh, unfortunately, one of the ways that we, the citizens of this very violent empire, contribute to all of that killing is with our tax dollars. And I invite people to consider withholding at least some portion of their federal taxes. More than 50% of their federal tax, our federal taxes, go to war making mm-hmm. and uh, violence and killing and some of the weapons going to the police department. Anyway, if we could and put that money into education or something into the community, uh, reparations, I, I don't know what, but uh, certainly to protect life. That's what we want to do. And then I'm always trying to encourage people not to encourage their children to join the military because we can see the torture report. Children are used, they're trained. One of the chants that they teach at, uh, I'm going to repeat it, one of the chants that they repeat at uh, basic training goes like this. And this is fitting because uh, I think it's the anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre too uh, the more killings and it goes like this ring the bell inside the schoolhouse this is the United States military chant ring the bell inside the schoolhouse see the children gather round load and lock with your I'm sorry it's either 440 or two, some kind of weapon load and lock with your whatever mow those little mother down that's what our soldiers are chanting as they're going off to kill other poor people someplace else. So it's all one piece, and okay. we're, we're paying for it. We've got to stop. I heard the mother say just a few minutes ago that we've got to make the rest of the community feel like a boycott. How else are going to people feel? The government's got to feel by okay. our not giving them money. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. And thank you for calling, Kathy. And we'll go to our next caller. Caller? Yes, yes, yes. Good Your morning. name, please? Good morning. Is, oh, good morning. My name is Rosalind. Hi, Rosalind. Am I on? Yes, yes, you're on. Yes, okay, good morning. Listen, uh, someone said earlier that the military tactics are used on uh, younger folks. Listen, I'm not a younger folk, but it's used on me, too. I'm in Roswell, Maryland, and they're using it any place they can. I and some of the, some of the uh, tactics that... The, Senator Feinstein talked about yesterday, military stuff, is being used on me, and I'm in Rockville, Maryland. So there, 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 they don't, there's no line as to where they won't, 
do it as long as they know that you can't get any air or you can't speak openly. Like, um, and I'm getting nervous. <laughs> but if you can't speak openly for other folks to hear what you're saying and what you're going through, because I'm being tortured and I, they have stopped me from walking without without assistance. Do you want to do you want to say what happened to you? Oh, I filed a lawsuit against my former employer, IBM. That's what happened to me. Okay. And it's, my, my case has been going on for 20 years. So, like I said, and I have moved from place to place. For a, for a forced move, by the way. And so, um, my case is quite old. They was filed in U.S. District Court in Lexington. And uh, I am still trying to find out what's going on. and trying to get some kind of help uh, okay. with my case. But, uh, uh, and... Uh, my work for IBM, but the FBI has taken it up, and I am under COINTELPRO. But every now and then, yes, sir, I can get out and talk. So thank you for listening. Well, thank you, and <laughs> thank you for calling. You know, Salim, you know, I think it was Rosalind. You know, what she um, said reminded me of how this movement has kind of connected street violence and brutality with economic violence and you know we had a conversation about that earlier this year and do you see those things coming forward I mean I, I was really encouraged by what I saw on Black Friday in terms of DC Ferguson you know united with Walmart workers to talk about the 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 connection between the two that it's not just about physical violence but also what is happening to us in terms of the economy and our families and being able to take care of ourselves well, I think it's only a matter of time before we're able to peel back all of these layers and see what's at the root, what's at the core of this issue. Um, one of the elements of, you know, white supremacy is, is capitalism. And, you know, the more prisons that they build, they're going to need uh, people to fill those prisons. And so how do they do that? They create, you know, the atmosphere of fear of black men, fear of black women, and fear of Latino people, and fear of people of color in general. And the more these prisons get built, the more they have to create the atmosphere and the dynamic for people to be afraid of these folks. So when they go to lock them up, the public is in support of people of color uh, being locked up. So it's nothing to lock up um, someone from Southeast D.C. It's nothing to lock up somebody in Trinidad. It's nothing to lock somebody up from Martin Luther King Avenue anywhere in the United States. So the prison industrial complex is a big business. So we see other aspects of, you know, our lives being impacted by that. And so now we're, you know, with, especially with D.C. Ferguson, that's something I'm very proud of, is that we've been able to consistently draw the connection between um, mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex and capitalism and a lot of these businesses. Many of these businesses um, own shares of stock or somewhere connected to private prisons, and they just need to have their business, their, their bottom line met. And so right. if it means um, someone being killed or if it means, you know, someone being just stopped and frisked, if it means someone being jumped out on, it doesn't matter. The, what they care about is the bottom line. And if, you know, the prison industrial complex is an endeavor that they're involved in, they want to see that bottom line met. Right. And, you know, just, just real quick, because we are, you know, of course the phone lines are, you know, filled up and we want to make sure we get to the calls. But, you know, what you're saying kind of connects back with what Kathy was saying earlier. Uh, earlier this week I had a conversation with, you know, people in the labor movement and they were talking and I was talking about how, you know, when you look at what the police unions are doing, what the unions that represent corrections officers are doing, these they're actually supporting this 
uh, military industrial policing complex because this is basically paying their salary. These are this is paying the salary of their members, and you know we really need to look very realistically at that. And um, um, a lawyer sent me a piece that I have yet to look at, but what she told me is that we also want to look at how when these police officers are sued and we do get damages we're paying these damages as taxpayers right every city every town every state that winds up you know paying money out to victims families victims this isn't the the individual police officers aren't really liable for this money right. it's being paid out so we are winding up paying for this just like we're paying for wars in other countries and and to kill other folks i anyway. know you got to take some calls but can i make another point real quick yeah and it's that if you go into any courthouse in america and most of these courthouses are immaculate marble floors i mean there's so much money put into a courthouse but when you go to many of our schools especially in the black community schools are run down we don't have enough textbooks the bathrooms aren't that great the conditions that our children go to learn in are poor and mediocre at best but yet the courthouses are immaculate and stunning right so that's just something to think about how much money is put into the, the, the prison system that means somebody had to build it somebody had to design it all of those different things there's an economy built off of putting black people in prison but yet we don't have the same passion and thrust and care and love and energy for our children to be educated. Okay. Oh, <clears throat> okay, we're going to go to the next caller. Um, your Hello? name? Claudia Zapata. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Southeast Washington, D.C. Okay, you're on the air. I just want to let everybody know that police tactics are also being used in the hospitals. My grandson is currently at Children's Hospital in D.C., and um, he was held hostage with uh, my daughter since November 25th through December 10th because we are not in agreement with the medical procedures that they're doing on him. They're over-medicating him. My daughter has been violated in every form. They, used, um, they interrogated her. They, they put her down in the hospital. I was barred from going in to support her and my grandson. Um, they have been threatening to take her child away. And they're just abusing the baby with over-treatments and, and over-drugging. He's a black and brown baby. And, and she has no say, absolutely no say in, in his, in what her medical, in her, the medical plans. And I don't know where to go from here. Is your daughter in police custody? Is she a, is she in, um, incarcerated? No. Um, the social worker is trying to build a case over there. And um, she was trying to, I, I don't know what, they, they were just holding her hostage because we're not in agreement with the medical procedures. And, I, yeah, and, chi and they got Child Protective Services involved and, and, you know, they're just threatening her. You know, I would, you know, just because it's the first thing that comes to my mind, you may want to call the local ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, and ask them about, um, if there's someone there that, who can help you, uh, who you can talk to. And um, I know they're online. I think it's ACLU.org. But, I um, did try and contact them, okay. but I'm having a hard time contacting people because I think the NSA is, like, like on my phone, not, not having me, you know, communicate okay. with people. They're giving me a hard time. Okay. Well, thank you for calling. And okay, I'll thank you. And I hope you, you. Can get some assistance. 
Caller, next caller. Hello? Yes, uh, your name and uh, where you're calling from? Yes, uh, my name is David and I'm calling from D.C. But, but I'd like to just give an illustration of how pervert, pervasive the, the uh, corruption is throughout you know, the police community. I have a co-worker whose daughter is a policeman. And he gave, uh, she gave him the little bar of blue and black sticker that you see on the back of cars. And she told him, she, and he used to bother, he's not on the police force or anything, but she told him to just put it on the back of his car. And I said, well, you know, what does that mean? What's the indication? And he says, he, and he smiled and says, he said, I don't get tickets and I don't get stopped. And... And the idea is, and, and, and we need someone needs to you know, bring this to light. All those little black stickers that you see on the back of cars, black and blue, dark blue, you see on the back of cars, they're not police officers necessarily. They're members of the family who are under the protection of the police department. In other words, they look the other way. Okay. Okay, thank, okay. You. thank you. Thank you. Next caller. Me? Hello? Yes, uh, your name and where you're calling from? Um, my name is Anna. I'm calling from uh, D.C. Uh, my issue is I have seen a lot of videos on TV about uh, the police brutality. Just like recently, there was one, I think, in a library whereby this man had a knife and had stabbed somebody. And uh, the issue is they ended up killing the man because he didn't want to put his knife down or try to attack the police. My question is, why don't the police try to shoot the person where they can live? Why do they always aim in places whereby they're definitely going to kill this person? And I did ask this question to the police officer, and he, she told me that that's what they're trained to do. They're trained to kill, to protect themselves, so they're supposed to shoot maybe on the chest and above. So I'm hoping that uh, President Obama and the Attorney General can have that change, uh, that law change all around the U.S. because I think sometimes they shoot people who are mentally ill. They could be mentally ill even though they have an armed weapon, they have a weapon, but they are mentally ill. So you kill somebody, and if you had injured the person, you would know why they were doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes killing somebody doesn't help to find the reasons okay. of what's going on. So I hope mm -hmm. that those laws get changed. No, okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, you know, we're going to have to wrap up. I know there are a lot of people still holding, and I'm sorry we can't get to you today, but please call again. You know, please call in community, watch and comment. You know, we're here every day, and, you know, perhaps you can get your comment in on another day or when we come back next week. Uh, Salim, you're being honored tonight, right? <laughs> yes, I'm being honored at the uh, Washington Peace Center there. Um, For your work as an activist. We, activist. I, congratulations. You deserve it. And um, we're going to have to sign off uh, from our show today. Um, uh, I'm Esther Averam. And I'm um, Michael Byfield. Uh, we want to thank everybody we spoke to, everyone who called, uh, Salima Dofo of the National Black United Front, um, and our engineer, Mike. I was going to call you Mike Mike. It's <laughs> the other Mike today. And uh, thank you uh, to everyone who called and listened. Uh, you can reach us at onthegroundshow.org. Uh, you can also like our Facebook and Twitter pages. And remember, um, this past Tuesday, December 9th, <laughs> marked four months since Darren Wilson shot dead Michael Brown in broad daylight in Ferguson, Missouri. 
in front of 16 of 18 witnesses who said Michael Graham was holding up his hands. And we are still seeking justice for him and all victims of police brutality and killing around the country. Thank you again, Salim. We'll, we'll keep talking. And um, so now stay tuned for, I think, Oscar Muhammad will have the news. And then followed by Krista Property on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Raise your voice. Peace.